Shifty Airlines announced the in-flight movie of the week is Casablanca, starring Humphrey Bogart and Ingemar Bergman. Have you anything to declare? No. We read this. <coughs> Does this case contain any livestock, meat products, fish derivatives, sodium glutinates? I'm gonna look like a saint. You guard that bag with your life for I'll give you some of that. Drive biological specimens, genealogical tables, table tennis tables, camels, camels' hooves, woggles, snoods, quantities of sandpaper exceeding 20 kilograms or 17 inches, whichever be greater. Elastic hedge trimmers, bandles. Quick, out the bag. Get the plane ready. Half a million, straight down the middle. You and me, right? How many thousand likes, dear boy? And I will reward you. podcast which celebrates the goon show and the goons themselves now today we're taking a little bit of a departure and we're going to talk about a british comedy film which does feature two goons but um certainly not in starring roles um british comedy films of the period tended to be of variable quality and some of them were pretty dreadful but if you were making a, a comedy film in the 1970s and you were lacking in laughs then a bit like when they would flash the Batman signal across the Gotham City skyline. British comedy filmmakers would flash the Milligan signal and Milligan would turn up and save the film. Uh, I'm not saying he does that necessarily in the film we're going to discuss today, but he makes a decent fist of it. Uh, my guest today is a returning guest. Uh, it's uh, Adrian Smith, who joined me uh, quite early in the history of GoonPod to talk about the goon film Down Among the Z-Men. Uh, Adrian is uh, a film academic, a writer, uh, co-host of two film podcasts, and uh, has a book coming out very soon, Norman J. Warren, Gentleman of Terror. Hello, Adrian. Good. Yes. Hi. It's interesting that you can talk about the history of your podcast already. You're doing really well. Well, his, history is a bit, <laughs> uh, a bit grand. Okay. Yeah, yes. Tw 20 episodes in. <laughs> 20 episodes is pretty impressive. That's, uh, that's very good. Coming on to your show and just listening to your podcast in general has uh, renewed my enthusiasm for all things goon. So, uh, so I want to thank you for that anyway. Thank you. Well, uh, it's, it's interesting because it's been an exercise in me sort of uh, listening again to the goon show and also other goon related product. I've actually learned a hell of a lot. You know, it's interesting having different guests with different perspectives. They will sometimes say things that make you look at things in a different way. And it's like, oh yeah, that's true. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. And it's really, really good. So it's, um, it's really enjoyable and uh, good to have you back. Mm. Uh, so tell me, tell me about who's, who is Norman J. Warren? He was a film director, started out in the 1960s. He was very young when he started working in film. He was one of Britain's um, 
youngest film directors at the time. He made his first feature in 1967, mm -hmm. uh, came out in 68, I think. I've already forgotten some of the key facts from the book. <laughs> I, hope you've, um, I, hope you, I hope you've written them down. Yes, I've tried. So anyway, so the book has been in the making for more than 10 years. I wrote my master's degree thesis on Norman, having met him and spoke to him several times. And he was very encouraging and very helpful. And um, he made nine films in total over about a 20 year period. And he's mm -hmm. done lots of other things where he made lots of documentaries and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, yeah, he's mainly known for his horror films, things like Saint and Slave and Terror and Inseminoid. Um, so the, it's the horror films that people most know him for. And there have been, there was a DVD box set of his horror films just recently indicated at a Blu-ray box set um, mm -hmm. yep. with five of his horror films. Um, so I was interested initially in his non-horror films, the films that had been pretty neglected uh, because there were kind of four main ones that everybody loved. And then his other films were just sort of forgotten. Uh, he did a sex comedy set on a spaceship uh, right. in the 1970s. Um, he did a kind of James Bond, The Professionals spoof film in the 80s called Gunpowder. Gunpowder, right. Yeah. What was the, um, um, what was the, the space, oh, space it, it's sex called, comedy? well, it's, it's known as either Out of Touch or Spaced Out. Um, right. depending on where you're from um, but anyway he had a very interesting career and he was a very nice guy he sadly died earlier this year just as the book was finally nearly finished he's been very patient as it's taken me and my co-author years to pull it together so it's finally with the publisher nearly finished hoping it'll be out by Christmas excellent yeah and before we started recording Adrian you mentioned that you've been busy doing um, booklets, writing booklets for Blu-rays, DVDs. Mm. Uh, also, you've been involved in a film commentary. Yeah, so I've been doing a few things for primarily network this year. This has been my network year. Yep. So along with, uh, with Rent-A-Dick, I did a booklet for um, a film called The Monster, also known as I Don't Want to Be Born, starring <laughs> Joan Collins. Uh, so that's an, a, an interesting 70s horror movie and uh, my my second features co-host Laura and I were asked to do a commentary track um, for I Don't Want to Be Born so that was interesting to have a go at doing that's the the first time I've done that okay. uh, trying to talk trying to talk for an hour and a half um, about one movie is uh, is actually quite a challenge <laughs> in a lot of ways but it was interesting to give it a go thankfully they um they they liked it so they're using it so that was just announced about a week ago um, i also did a booklet for a bella lugosi film called dark eyes of london so that's that i think both of those are coming out for halloween right. and okay there's one more which hasn't been announced yet so i don't right. think i can mention it fair enough <laughs> how much how much sort of preparation research do you need to do for a commentary Oh, I probably needed to do more than I actually did. But I don't know. I did watch the film a few times and did, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to know until you hit record and start and press play on the film. It's kind of hard to know how it's going to go. And I, we had lots of facts and figures prepared and thing, topic points to talk about. I mean, if you listen to it, if you ever do listen to it, there's, there's bits where I'm like, oh, yeah, uh, mm, 
there's a thing that I remembered, but I can't remember what it was now. And, you know, <laughs> there's a bit of, oh, what was that thing? So it, but luckily because I've got a co-host, it's, it's basically quite conversational. So yes. I'm hoping if anyone does listen to it, that they won't be uh, overly critical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I've listened to a load, you know, over the years, I've listened to loads of film commentaries and I tend to incline more towards the, the ones that, the, the, where it's um, someone like yourself who wasn't direct, who wasn't directly involved with the film. Mm. So it's someone who's, um, you know, like a, um, a writer, academic, or whoever it may be, or historian, film historian. Mm. Um, the ones where they've got maybe someone who appeared in the film, I sometimes find those a bit tiresome because yeah. very often, if it's like an actor who hasn't seen the film for 40 years, they'll spend most of it going, oh, yes, I remember that. Oh, yes. <laughs> or, and, and they'll have a very often unreliable memory. When it comes yeah. to details so they can be very hit and miss yeah mm. yeah but it was an interest i hope i'd like to do it again and uh, i can learn some lessons from uh, <laughs> from the one we just did sure but sure. Uh, but anyway but yeah it's been so it's been an interesting year obviously lockdown caused all of us to to think a bit more differently about our lives and what we do and mm -hmm. i just i somehow decided i was going to just take on more film projects um to to fill some of the gaps where i would otherwise have been commuting i suppose I yeah. don't know. Uh, so yeah it's been fun to to do all that stuff and to get the book finally finished and uh, and also you know to to watch films like rent-a-dick uh, a couple of times and rent-a-dick was hard actually that the this is the, probably that was probably the booklet that i struggled with the most mm. uh, of all mm. the ones i've written this year although when you read it of course you're gonna think it just you know it's very breezy and uh, flows <laughs> flows very well, but I found that one really difficult because there's not a lot of information out there because the film is generally considered to be terrible. Um, there's not a lot of information available, and I had to do a lot of digging, mm. and luckily managed to get some archival stuff that the network had that was quite helpful sure. um, because people involved with it just didn't ever really talk publicly about it. Uh, John Cleese mentions it briefly in his recent uh, autobiography, and I managed to find something that Graham Chapman had said about it in one of his books. But yeah, there wasn't a lot out there, so it was that was a tough one. But and also, obviously, the film is not great. So yeah, well, let's, <laughs> you sort of yeah. start to wonder why you're spending all this time on something that's perhaps not really worth it. But uh, anyway, it was interesting to do. Absolutely. As you've already alluded to, we're, today we're talking about the 1972 film Rent-A-Dick, mm. <laughs> um, a, a film which is um, qualifies for this podcast because it has two goons in it, uh, barely, but it does have two yes. goons in it. They, they probably have about seven or eight minutes screen time between them. Uh, you know, Judy Dench got an Oscar for appearing on screen in a film for about eight minutes. <laughs> That's um, true. These two aren't going to win any Oscars. It's it's Ben Teen and Milligan. It's it's Spike and Mike. And speaking Although of Oscars, the, the director, I was you were just going to say, you know, the director Jim Clark did win an Oscar later on in his career, but not for this film. That's right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yes, because I wasn't aware of Jim Clark until I sort of started doing a bit of research. Uh, so he directs this film in 1972. Mm. Uh, it, it looks like the only other films he actually directed were the, the Marty Feldman film Every Home Should Have One. Mm. Which, which is another, which is again available on networks, not very good. And, and a film called Madhouse, is that right? Yes, which is um, 
I mean, it's it's Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. So, you know, All right. okay. what's not right. to love? It's yeah. a good film, although it's not one of the best of their, you know, it, it's a kind of cut price, if you excuse the pun, um, yeah. 70s horror film that it fits quite well with things like Theatre of Blood and Dr. Fives, but it's not as good as either of those. Right. Okay. Okay. But um, yeah, it's entertaining enough. It's got quite a good cast. It doesn't make any sense. No. Um, well, even, yeah, ne- neither does Rent a Dick. No, what well, exactly? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I looked at Jim Clark on, you know, did a bit of research as you do, and there were some names of movies that were popping up. And I was thinking, good God. Okay. Because mm. Mid- Midnight Cowboy. Uh, the Innocence with Deborah Carr, yeah, uh, and of course he he wins. Well, he's, I guess he's better known for being a film editor. Is that mm. right? Yeah, he was um he was an assistant editor on the Lady Killers as well. So he oh, had a lot of experience was, yes. mm. by the time he by the time he made this one, mm-hmm. he'd had a lot of experience in the industry. And then he gets a, he he wins a uh, an Oscar and a BAFTA for The mm. Killing Fields also been involved with films like Marathon Man, Vera Drake. I guess, you know, his strengths lay not so much in film direction, but in other areas, yeah. um, if Rent-A-Dick's anything to go by. Uh, I mean, but, you, you do get, you find this a lot, that there are a lot of people who were editors that become directors. Mm-hmm. Like in, back in the Hollywood system, that was a traditional route to go. And a lot of the best directors had been editors and they often excelled at directing within the studio system because they knew exactly what they needed to get, what coverage they needed, um, because they've obviously spent years editing. So they know what's needed for the edit. So they tend sure. not to shoot. They don't, they tend not to waste film. Yeah. They know exactly what they're going to use. So very often editors make the best directors, which I'm not quite sure that was the case here. I'm sorry. Don't hit me. Shut up. It's a dog. Never mind. Give me the meat. What's that? Meat. It's deep frozen. Keeps it fresh. Well, you had better just get through that window, hadn't you? Why me? Well, you broke the torch, didn't you? But there's a dog in there. Yeah. Keep calm. But we can't see the dog, can we, without the torch? So Brer Gannett has to make friends with the dear little doggy and bring him to the window so nasty old me can tranquilize him and put him to bed Got it? Or shall I tell everybody about that nasty little incident in the park? <laughs> what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, Adrian, is actually quote the last paragraph from the um, the booklet that comes with the Blu-ray of Rent-A-Dick that, that you wrote, um, because it's I just think it's a, a nice way to sort of you know ease us okay. into talking about the film. Uh, if you can put aside its many flaws, Rent-A-Dick still has much to offer the modern viewer, provided they are warned first about what to expect. <laughs> All you need to do then is to pour yourself some Watney's Red Barrel, slip on a brown polyester shirt, put the film on and time travel back to 1972, when beloved sitcom stars appeared to have pretty low standards and when farce reigned supreme. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing at my own writing. That's really vain. But, uh, <laughs> I haven't looked back at it since I sent it to them, basically. So, yeah, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, no, I, just, I, I stand by that. Yes, 
yeah. Uh, well, let's let's look at the sort of the genesis of the film in terms of how it came about. Mm. Um, you've already mentioned uh, Cleese, John Cleese, um, but it was a, it was written by John Cleese and Graham Chapman and originally, I understand, and it was as a vehicle for them and for for their at last the nineteen forty eight co-stars Tim Brooke Taylor and Marty Feldman yeah wouldn't that have been amazing that and would have been great. Um, Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett were going to be in it as well yes and oh, I mean like a, it would have been a dream late 60s comedy project with all those guys in it I think yeah and it was going to be called Rent a Sleuth mm. which which is a better um, better title well it is I mean I still have reservations <laughs> about think you know, we can get into that when we talk about the plot the, the the whole idea of it being about a private detective agency doesn't really make any sense. No. Um, <laughs> because they're asking a private detective agency to provide security. So surely they're a private security agency. Like The whole detective, it's like they don't quite know what detectives do. And so they think that private detectives and security companies are the same thing. Mm, mm. Uh, I find it slightly confusing. But yeah, but originally it was called Rent-A-Sleuth and the script was more or less the same as the final, as the film that we have now, only, well, the sort of the plot, I think, was basically the same. Um, but yeah, so that was, they they took it, they sold it around, well, they, they touted it around, I mean. They had Charles Crichton on board to direct, again, going back to Ealing. Yeah. Um, and it would have been really good. But then, for some reason, so the, they'd written this script. Um, David Frost helped. I think he paid for them. He paid them to develop the script because, obviously, they had a lot of connection with him through the Frost Report and all yep. that stuff. Mm -hmm. So he, he effectively owned it. And so without their permission, without even telling them, he sold it on to Ned Sheeran's production company, Virgin Films, um, without get consulting them first. He basically, I think he saw that this was potentially going to be a costly project, which he didn't want to take on. So he sold the script to somebody else who would. Right. And that's where it all went wrong, really. And um, Cleese and Chapman were very annoyed about that because Ned Sheeran refused to allow Charles Crichton to direct it. And because everybody else had great respect for Charles Crichton, they said, well, if he can't do it, we're not going to do it. And so, so that was it. <laughs> what was the problem that Sharon had with Crichton then? I don't know. I think Ned Sharon was trying to be somebody who created a hub for what he saw as new talent rather than old guard, mm -hmm. basically, because mm -hmm. he was doing sort of younger, newer, more challenging films like The Virgin Soldiers, so I think that's probably what what it was. Um, he he saw this as a as a as a different sort of project. I'm not entirely sure. Again, very difficult to, to yeah. pin down uh, exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, so they were also making other TV comedy comedies into films like Up the Chastity Belt was one of theirs. They made the Alf Garnet film. Um, oh, that was dreadful. Okay. So Ned Sharon wanted to uh, add some satire as he saw it. So he brought in John Fortune and John Wells and they made some changes to the script, which then John Graham Chapman and John Cleese really hated. Mm. And so 
when the film was completed and they saw what had happened to it, they asked for their names to be taken off. So all a bit of a mess, really. In certain prints of the film, they are still credited, aren't they, Cleese and Chapman? But in others, they're, they're, they've got pseudonyms. Yes, there, there seems to be three different versions. There was a version that was prepared when Ned Sharon thought that they were still on board. So, their name, so there's like an original version where their names are in the credits. Then they asked for pseudonyms, which were, let's see if I can remember, uh, Jim Viles for Graham Jack Chapman and Kurt Loggerhead for John Cleese. Yeah. I don't quite know where those came from. Yeah. Um, but then um, they had in other prints, and I think the print that's ended up on the Blu-ray just says there's no credit for a script at all, and it just says additional dialogue by uh, John Fortune and John Wells, and there's just no script credited at all, which is a little bit odd. Yeah, well, so, anyone anyone yeah. watching this film could be forgiven for thinking uh, there wasn't a script. No, nope. there was just a there was just additional dialogue because I mean it is a perfect ex example of, of what could have been, as you say, what could have been a great film as mm. it was originally envisaged, but if if it hadn't been for some huge misjudgments and misfires in pre-production, as you say, like selling the script to, to Ned Sharon. Yeah. Uh, I'm just imagining what it could have been like if it had had, you know, <clears throat> Tim and Marty and the two Ronnies and Charles Crichton and Cleason Chapman, of course. And it was it was him that changed it as well as Ned Sharon that changed the title to Renter Dick. Right. Um, uh, because yeah. of, they were trying to sell, if you look at the posters as well, they were, uh, they're clearly trying to sell it as a sex comedy. Yes. Um, with Julie Eag on the front, even though it was rated very, I think it's just rated PG. You know, <laughs> there's no, um, there's no sex in the film at all. Uh, they they try they try with her Julie yeah. Julie Eag, not Edge Eag. Edge yeah. Eag, yeah. Yeah, they they try with her almost to they they try their best to have a little bit of titillation, but they don't really. Mm. It's like the 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 heart's not in it. No. Um, no, um, so the name the name is very misleading, um, yes. for what uh, for the imagery and and obviously not just the the imagery. If you ever look at the poster, it's not just the fact that she's there wrapped in a towel. Um, it's the way they've got this because the plot is based around this nerve agent that's just a spray can basically that makes people paralysed from the waist down, and they've got these hands suggestively yeah. caressing the, uh, <laughs> the, the spray can on the poster yeah. and it's all very uh, nudge nudge wink wink and uh, but but misleading because there's not really any of that it's kind of weird the film doesn't seem to know the finished film doesn't seem to know who the audience is like, are they trying to target the the sex comedy audience i mean this is still a couple of years before we get to the confessions films and things um so they could have pushed that more and then this would have perhaps just become more of a recognised cult sex comedy. Or if they'd have just reined it back a little bit, it could have been a perfectly serviceable family comedy. Whereas it sort of falls between two stools, I think. It does. Because I was, I remember watching it and taping it in April mm. 1991. I checked on uh, BBC Genome. Hmm. So it was, I think it was, it was, it was on either BBC One, BBC Two. I remember very specifically it was um, it was on and I taped it because obviously at the time I was a um, huge mad goon fan mm. and I knew that 
not only Spike Milligan was in it, but Michael Benteen. I know I was just, and I, you know, my, my exposure to Benteen had been at that time, very limited, very limited mm, indeed. Uh, but I was, uh, you know, at the time I was 17, I was a randy 17 year old. And I think, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to say for sure, but I, I would imagine I was probably thinking as well, oh, you know, it's got Spike, it's got Mike. It's probably, you know, it's probably got you know, a little bit more for me as well. Um, mm. I remember watching it. I remember thinking, well, that's pretty rubbish. Yeah. And, and I had to wait right till nearly the end to see Spike as well. You mentioned Benteen, you're not having much exposure to Benteen. I was exactly the same. And because he didn't do many films looking back at no. this is if you no. look at his credits in the 70s, this is the only movie he one of the well, it's the only film he did. He did a couple of films in the 60s, but yeah. and obviously the, the sort of the 50s, he was in a couple there, but he didn't do many movies. It was mostly TV. And by the time I was around in the you know, when I was watching TV in the 80s and 90s, that stuff never got repeated. I've still to this day never seen Potty Time or it's a square world or any of those shows that he did. Mm -hmm. I've never seen those. So I've only seen him in this and um, down among the Zed men. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Basically. Well, I've seen, and I've even done a, a sh one of these shows dedicated to potty time recently. Mm. So I've watched quite a bit of potty time for yeah, this. I need and, to, and, I need to get myself some of those. Uh, and they're very good. Um, I wouldn't say you could sit down and binge watch them, <laughs> mm. but, but that was definitely not something that was repeated on TV. So, so yeah, he wasn't somebody that you really knew that much about. And especially because all the goon shows that he was in, you know, were not available to listen to either. Mm. So all I really knew about Michael Benteen and his involvement with the goons was from the photos of the very early goons together yeah. in the books and stuff. But um so I think possibly when I saw this film for the first time back in the 90s, that was probably the first time I'd seen Michael Benzine, uh doing anything. Do you know, it was possibly for me the second time. But um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's barely in it, uh, nor is Spike. But just, just getting back to, with regards to Charles Crichton. So Cleese and Chapman essentially removed themselves from the, from the film. Mm. Uh, but Cleese obviously must have kept in contact with Charles Crichton because he went on to do Fish Called Wanda, didn't he? Yeah. Which again, uh, obviously by the time Wanda was ready to go, Charles Crichton was in his late seventies mm. and the, um, the film, I forget which, I forget which studio it was, but they, they didn't want Crichton. And so John Cleese, had to do all kinds of deals with them to get Crichton for, to be allowed. But I think John Cleese had to say that he was going to be a co-director. In reality, Crichton directed it. But I think officially, John Cleese had to say that he was co-directing because they were concerned about Charles Crichton's age. Um, okay. yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so they didn't make it easy for him. But obviously, the you know, Fish Called Wanda is great. And Charles Crichton was was still up to the task mm -hmm. but uh it seems a shame yeah that uh, even with this one 20 years almost 20 years after rented dick john cleese still had to fight but at least this time he won and he did get charles Crichton on board i did not expect to be here at this moment i am uh 
John Cleese manipulated it so that after doing all that other stuff, I eventually did wonder, for which I thank him very much. But I have a big message for young directors who are trying to get into the business. Do not work with all those talented artists because you get on the floor in the morning, you know what you're going to do, you've got it all worked out, and then they have all sorts of ideas and you're absolutely lost. Yeah, yeah. You're right, you're right in the booklet, Cleese and Chapman were you know, probably disappointed about what happened with Rent-A-Dick, but at the time there was so much else going on in mm. terms of their career. You, you make reference to the great Bird's Eye Peas relaunch of 1971. Oh, it's amazing. So basically, it's a, it's a corporate film. Monty Python were asked to make a corporate film for Bird's Eye. It wasn't released publicly at the time. It was just to be shown in some boardrooms. But it's basically a short Monty Python film made between, I think, was it seasons two and series two and three? Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It's about 25 minutes long. They're all in there. I think um, Terry Jones directed it. And it's really bizarre. You can't imagine what these boardroom bird's eye guys must have made of the thing when they <laughs> when they got it. It's basically just a brand relaunch. They're, they're changing their packaging or they're, they're doing a relaunch of the brand and they asked Monty Python to, they paid Monty Python to do it. And so it was never released publicly. It was lost for years and then it sort of resurfaced from some, probably just someone's cupboard in an old bird's eye office somewhere, I suppose. They found a 16 millimeter can. And do you like that pea? Yes, yes, it's very nice indeed. Is that the right answer? No, no. Couldn't tell it from butter. No, couldn't tell that pea from a dead crab. I couldn't tell that pea from a trip to Hamburg. I couldn't tell that pea from a blow on the head. Mmm, that tasted nice. Mmm, must have been bird's eye. Delicious. I like all my peas on the plate to be the same size. Why? Sheer stupidity. I like them the same size because they then create a sense of cosmic harmony. Because they don't frighten me so much. So. We'll start talking about the film. Um, it's it's very difficult to kind of because there there seems to be lots of different little side plots. Oh yeah, occurring. Um, but essentially, it's well, the MacGuffin, I suppose, is this nerve gas, um, which uh, Donald Sinden's company has developed. And Donald Sinden plays this uh, uh, industrialist who's married to Julie. I keep, I keep saying Edge Eag. Yeah. Um, and the, the, basically he, he employs the firm of um, Upton Security to make sure that nobody steals the formula for this. Uh, which which this again, company. this is just my first problem with it. Why would you go to a detective agency mm. to hire security guards? Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Unless, unless back in the 70s, there were no such thing as private security guard agencies. I don't know. But it just that whole thing seems weird. And why is it called Upton Security and not Rent-A-Dick? Yeah, the, the word Rent-A-Dick never 
is mentioned in the film at all. <laughs> so we've got, I mean, the film's full of very familiar faces. We've got two of the stars from The Good Life, uh, Penelope Keith and mm. Richard Bryars. Now, Richard Bryars is quite a revelation in this. I, I would oh, say he's, he? he's probably the best thing in this film. Oh, absolutely. This, the, there is pain. There is pain in this film, <laughs> but there is also Richard Bryars, and he is so great in it. It is worth suffering through the bits he's not in uh, to get to his scenes because he's so good in it. And he just reminds us once again why he was one of Britain's most loved comedy performers. He was just born funny by the look of things. Here he is back in his much younger days when he was, I think this is probably around the time he was doing radio comedy quite a lot. Yep. Um, Yeah, because he was uh, doing, um, probably around this time he was doing the, Jeez and Worcester series with Michael Gordon. I was a shade perturbed. Nothing to signify, really, but still a spot concerned. Jeeves had just told me that Sir Roderick Glossop had called to see me earlier in the AM, and on being informed that I had not yet risen, had threatened to return later. And I must say, as I sat in the old flat, idly touching the strings of my banjolele, an instrument to which I had become greatly addicted of late, I couldn't for the life of me imagine why Sir R. Glossop should be paying me social calls. So he's, but yeah, he is marvellous in this film. So, so, so he's basically, his name is Gannett. And, and there's, a, there's a couple of characters with kind of bird-inspired names. Yeah, because there's a character called Altrus. Yes. <laughs> which sounds like a Monty Python name. And, and, but then you've, then you've got a Hamilton, Mr. Hamilton, Mr. West, which yeah. is about as prosaic as you can get. But yeah. um, but Gannett, so uh, Briar's character is this employee of, of Major Upton's security firm, uh, and there's a hell of a lot of violence visited upon him. It, Donald Sindon steps on his fingers. Uh, Hamilton, played by the actor James Booth, um, what does he do? Does he just punch him in the face and knock him out, or <laughs> ram a vase into his face? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, he, and, and at one point, he's about to kill him with a frozen leg of lamb. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah Briars is basically his job is to. Well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure because there's there's so many different operatives working for Upton, mm. it's, and they're all they all seem to be working towards different ends. So Hamilton, the James Booth character, is sort of the the Spiv character, if you like, the villain. Yeah. So he wants to steal the formula on behalf because he is being paid by Madame Greenfly, the um, Japanese geisha. <laughs> Yeah. who appears to work for the Japanese Secret Service or something. And so she's hired Hamilton to steal the formula, whereas Major Upton, who runs the company, has been contacted by um, Donald Sindon himself to protect it. So you've got some of the guys from the agency protecting it, which includes Richard Beckinsale. Uh, he's on. He's trying to protect the thing whilst... Hamilton and Miles Gannett are trying to steal it. So with, with hilarious consequences. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Madame Greenfly, which is, mm. which is a bit on the nose. Isn't it? Um, but if, if you're going into this film expecting sensitive r- r- racial portrayals, um, mm. you're going to be disappointed. Oh dear. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And she's actually played by Tsai Chin who is not Japanese at all. She's Chinese. Right. In fact, she was um, 
if you've seen any of the Fu Manchu films, the Christopher Lee Fu Manchu oh, films, okay. she right. is the daughter of Fu Manchu. Um, what's quite exciting is that she is still acting to this day. Uh, she is in a brilliant film from a couple of years ago called Lucky Grandma, which is, uh, you've got to watch that. I, everybody should watch Lucky Grandma. But then I also spotted her. She's in Shang-Chi, the, uh, the new Marvel movie. So I went to see that last week and uh, she's in that as well. So right. there you go. So there's a direct line from Rent-A-Dick to Marvel. <laughs> Right. Okay. And this is her here playing Madam Greenfly. And, and she's surrounded by a group of, of fellow, well, Ooh. supposedly Japanese They're, men. Yeah. Uh, it's, the, it's the full stereotype. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like they watched Breakfast at Tiffany's to find out how to portray <laughs> Japanese people. It's pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. I don't really know mm -hmm. what happens with them. They, they just kind of, they end up on a fire engine. Uh, <laughs> and so... You mentioned Richard Beckinsale. Now he's down as introducing Richard Beckinsale in the credits. Yes, uh, I believe this was his first film. He was pretty hot at the time from um, Live Birds, was it? The Lovers. Oh, The Lovers. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he was really big from The Lovers. So this was his first movie. Yeah, because The Lovers spawned a feature film, but mm. it must have been made after this, probably 73 or something. Yeah, it was a couple of years later. Um. We've got the this this. I mean, it's it's hard to really talk about this film in terms of tr try and make sense of it. But Donald Sinden's company, Armitage Chemicals, specialists in pollution, so they've made this nerve gas which causes uh, temporary paralysis. Testing, Only in the legs. For Only some in the reason. legs. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they've been testing on mice, and then we've got you know later on in the film we've got Kenneth Cope, television's. Um, which one was he, Randall or Hopkirk? One of them. Uh, he was Hopkirk. Hopkirk. Um, he spends half the film dressed up as a big grey mouse. Yes. Now, isn't he, because he's, does he also work, for, I've, I've forgotten already how it is so complicated, <laughs> this film. I think he is also in on the scheme with Hamilton to try and steal the formula. I think he's working with them. Yeah, so, so Hamilton manages to smuggle out this canister and gives it to the Kenneth Cope character, who, as I say, who's, who's permanently dressed as a giant grey mouse, <laughs> which has never really explained why. No. Um, and it reminded me recently, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, uh, did you see that footage of James Corden was involved with this new uh, film? Yeah. Um, and they were promoting it. I think it's Cinderella. And mm. they, the, he and the stars were promoting it in, I don't know, LA or something, out on the street. And at one point, he was dressed as a grey, big grey mouse, James Corden. <laughs> and it just made me think of Kenneth Cope. Yes. Uh, so uh, what? Mm. <laughs> so what? Tell me about um, Julie Eag because she she oh, spends. Yeah. I mean, she's she's very pleasant on the eye. Um, mm -hmm. But she she spends the film. She delivers dialogue like she's reading from a shopping list written in Portuguese, very very slowly. Yeah, I mean, she bless her. She's Norwegian. Yeah, um, but she made her career mainly in film in the UK, um, and she is obviously she's hired for her looks and the fact that, like you know, uh, Scandinavian women were often hired to take their mm. clothes off in British films. Mm. And uh, she was certainly uh, not against that. So she was in a few movies. Um, 
she did a Hammer film called Creatures the World Forgot, which is one of the Hammer dinosaur films, but it hasn't, they couldn't afford any dinosaurs. So it's just a load of people running around in fur bikinis um, fighting with rubber snakes. It's not very good. <laughs> so um, are, there, are there no sort of um, stop motion no, dinosaurs? They couldn't, they couldn't afford it. So they just took a bunch of these people and a <laughs> big pile of old fur to, uh, I don't know where it was, um, the Canary Islands probably, yeah. and then just ran around around with some rubber snakes. Um, but she's best known, I think, for, the, um, for some sex comedies that she did. Like she did The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins. Oh, yes. And Rent-A-Dick, obviously. She did Not Now Darling, which is relatively funny. She did do the uh, the seven, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. That's another Hammer film. That's, uh, right. That one's much more entertaining. And she does actually have to act in that one. Right. Um, but yeah, she was mainly hired. You know, She was basically in the UK for about six or seven years, did a bunch of films, some of them involving having to take her clothes off. And then she went back to Norway and lived out the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the film is basically leading up to a, I, I want to say a car chase at the end, but it's not exactly a car chase because you've got a fire engine, you've got John Wells in a motorised wheelchair, uh, you've got um, Richard Breyers in a ice cream van, uh, mm. you've got Donald Sinden in a Rolls Royce. They're, they're all going somewhere. They're going to this makeshift airport michael benteen's character although even calling it a character is quite generous Mm. um he he's playing some kind of arab sheikh i think he's supposed to be and it appears to be his own private airport and so james booth simon hamilton who's the villain of the whole thing really he seems to have a side hustle as well as being a dodgy detective he also kidnaps showgirls from London theatres and takes them to Michael Benteen who keeps them for his harem and like flies them off to wherever it's supposed to be mm. um, so we, we've got it that's where we get Michael Benteen coming in earlier in the film when when Hamilton delivers his latest batch of dancing girls so I think at the end Hamilton is running to the airport because he's going to escape with the formula or something so he's mm. trying to get away by going to the airport so everybody ends up chasing him to the airport which is where we get a scene at the end again with michael benteen and this is where spike also comes in as the uh, customs officer yeah ha- hamilton also, also dressed as an arab yeah, yeah with very rudimentary makeup um yeah. uh, ha- hamilton played by james booth now james booth i knew from zulu mm. and from um he was in the second series of uh, alfida's own pet which, oh, yeah. which I loved. Um, so I knew him from those. He's not a natural comedy actor, I think it's fair to no. say. Uh, um, <laughs> but in this film, he's a he's a bastard, really. He, he poisons a dog. <laughs> dog dies. Uh, so say he's he's gonna he's gonna beat Richard Bryce to death with a leg of lamb. He's trafficking these showgirls, mm-hmm. um, and he just seems to spend much of the film threatening people or trying to deceive his employer. Which yeah. is the the wonderful Ronald Fraser, who I know from you know, the Wild Geese. He was in one of my favourite films, is The Flight of the Phoenix. Mm. Uh, he too was in The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins and The Bed Sitting Room with Spike. Isn't it great to see Ron, Ronald Fraser? Is another one of those faces that you just see pop up and stuff. It's oh, really yeah. nice to see him almost in a lead role. 
and I think it's in this film it's really nice to see him actually have quite a lot to do yes so that was that's another thing that I enjoyed about this movie is seeing somebody like him get the chance to be one of the stars of the film rather than just putting some faces in a couple of scenes like he very yeah. often would so th there was a gag as I wrote down as well there's a gag Sindon Donald Sindon has a Rolls Royce with a lady chauffeur mm. um, did you notice who played the chauffeur I didn't that was uh, that's Patricia Quinn who is best known for being in the Rocky Horror Show I thought that was quite fun that she's there she is actually Irish so she's getting to do her proper accent right yeah <laughs> in this film and she's and the, and the the gag is that she's his chauffeur, but he drives, and she yeah. she she sits in the passenger seat and says, "Yeah, where to, sir?" And he says, "In this case, Middlesbrough." Um, he seemed to get back from he, he seemed to get back from Middlesbrough quite smartish, didn't he? Yes, when, um, yeah, it's got got quite an engine that car. <laughs> I mean, they're uh, basically he's basically having an affair with her, and he's just driving yes. her off for the weekend, <laughs> um, leaving I, his beautiful Norwegian wife at home. I thought I thought that was very Python esque, yeah. That gag, uh, and then you've got like you know little sort of very brief cameos from actors such as Derek Griffiths. Um, yeah, that's a weird scene, isn't it? Who almost gets drowned in petrol? Petrol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's weird. You've got Robert Gillespie, who's working at the airport. Robert Gillespie in a fez. Uh, and I've always loved Robert Gillespie from um, he was the lead in a sitcom called um, Keep It In The Family in I think, oh, the yes. early 80s. Yeah, vaguely um, remember that. So he played this cartoonist called Dudley somebody and the, the character was a cartoonist and he mm. he had a puppet lion that he would have on his hand and he would he would have the pen or pencil in the lion's mouth when he was drawing these cartoons. And I remember as a kid watching this and roaring with laughter, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, but he he turns up very briefly in this. And then we've got we've got Spike. And it's fantastic. <laughs> I, I'm convinced, in fact, I'm sure that it's all improvised by Spike. The dialogue. Is, yes, it feels like it, doesn't it? It reminds me, it's very goonish. It reminds me of a famous sequence from um, the goon show, uh, I think it's the International Christmas Pudding, where they have um, a list of weird and wonderful uh, items that they're going to be taking on this e expedition. Oh, yeah. One knee-action self-reciprocating Christmas pudding gun. One hand-painted inflatable Christmas pudding decoy with rubber holly. One portable plastic and gravel road. One long bent thing with a sort of lump on the end. <laughs> One waterproof cover for the same. One same. 33 boxes of yellow kosher boots. Another long bent thing with a sort of lump on the end. One uncooked leather trilby with sugar feather. <laughs> but you've got Spike as this customs officer and he's got this face makeup of indeterminate colour. Mm. Um, it kind of looks almost purple. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's doing the, the foreign accent um, and he's uh, reading from a list of prohibited items which you know, mustn't be allowed on the plane. So he, he lists things like quantities of sandpaper exceeding 20 kilograms, uh, cricket pitches made of leather, <laughs> uh, inflatable models of Raquel Welch. Well, he'd go on to work with Raquel, wouldn't he? Yeah. In, in a year or two. Um, handcuffed bidets, <laughs> uh, trusses and appliances. Now, he always loved the word appliances. 
<laughs> yeah, but he's only he's only on screen for probably what five minutes at most. Yeah, and it, and it's, he's sort of standing there just reading this list out while all the chaos is going on around him, mm-hmm. seemingly yeah. oblivious. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, you've got to, you've got to push through to nearly the end of the movie to get to him. But if you can forgive the uh, the the Arabian dress, then it's pretty funny. And, and, and you, you forget as well at the end because it's 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 kind of bookended. The film's bookended by Julie Eag being interviewed by uh, Penelope Keith. Yeah, but that's weird as well. It, she, she she begins by sort of telling the I think it's a reporter who's come to interview her about this crazy thing that happened to her. So then she begins to tell the story, but of course it's ridiculous because most of what we see in this movie, she would have had no idea. Yes, what's going on. <laughs> so unless she's done some kind of really thorough investigation and she's interviewed everybody involved, I don't know how she's telling this story because most of it she was completely oblivious of. Um, but yeah, she seems to be telling the story, which we then see depicted in the movie. And, and then we so, find uh, out that she's, well, I'm, well, I'm guessing she's committed bigamy because she's now married to Michael Benteen. Yeah, she become I mean, head of the harem or something. Uh, yeah, and I'm, assu- I'm assuming that spoiler her, alert, her husband Donald <laughs> Sindon is still with us. So um, I don't know what's happened unless unless they've had a quickie divorce or something. But she's she's with yeah, him. he's well, he's happy. He's gone off with his chauffeur. That's true. That's true. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a hot mess of a film, as they yes. say. The the music actually the the theme song is by Dave D and the King Singers. Oh, isn't it? Oh, it's irritating, isn't it? Yeah. While I'm lurking on a dozen dirty thresholds, are keeping guilty parties in my sights. In my sight. Taken new to those temptations at the flesh holds. While I sacrifice my conjugal goggle rights. Once I had to tailor blow for an enormous. And I waited in the rain while he had fun. And until that time, I never knew what dormant. A detective's rod is not a happy one. There is fun to be had with this movie. And I think you you know if you're the kind of person who is going to enjoy this. So you know if you like early 70s British comedies uh, or not. You're like If you're the kind of person who doesn't, then isn't, this isn't going to be the film to win you over. But if you're already, you know, if you, if you already feel generous towards the uh, bottom of the barrel British comedy of the early mid 70s, you know, if you've got that kind of mindset, then there is there is entertainment value here. But um, but yeah, this is not the film. This is not the first film to watch. If you think, oh, I wonder why the seventies British comedies are any good, because <laughs> it's this isn't going to be the one to do it for you. Yeah, well, if if you, I'm, I was thinking, if you removed some of the more questionable content, and if you removed a lot of the. Um, shots of Julie walking around in revealing tops or whatever. And if you removed some of the comments, like um, at one point, Richard Beckinsale spots Richard Breyer's eyeing up Julie Eag. Get it! Oh! I thought you were one of the unspeakable brown hatters. I beg your pardon. I'm having an affair with her. There's something very special between us. Uh, (laughs) um, If you remove stuff like that, with, with... with the rest of it, I mean, it's not far far off being a a kids' film in some ways. No. I think you'd have to take out the human trafficking as well. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> and but the he, brown and the brown face. 
Yeah, but I you mean, trim it, trim it down to a to, trim it down to an hour, and it could be a kids' <laughs> film. <laughs> it's really funny. And if you if if you're someone who likes this film, where would you recommend they go next? What would you recommend as sort of further viewing? Oh, that's difficult, isn't it? I mean, this was a bit of if you look at the sort of British comedies of this time, it was a bit of a fallow period. I mean, I think we mentioned before, um, is it called Not Tonight, Darling? Not Now, Darling? Mm, mm. That one's not bad. Uh, mm. But yeah, there's a bunch of those. Um, I would say go, you know, if you go a little bit earlier into the 60s, there's some proper great British comedies, which are, again, more sort of suitable for the family as well. Um, Father Came Too is a good one. See, I like Father Came Too because I know somebody that was in it. But there was also, oh yeah, The Fast Lady. There's films oh. like that, you know. Oh, are they uh, James Robertson Justice? Yeah. Right. Okay. So there's there's movies like that from from that sort of period. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's the Doctor films as well. Doctor in Love, Doctor in Trouble. There you go. Uh, but yes, yeah, I suppose Rent a Dick is title aside. Mm. It's the sort, and and also um, like you say, uh, Blu-ray or DVD cover aside, it's a sort of British sex comedy that you could show your granny. Yes. Because it's, it's not going to upset her sensibilities. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, because if you start going later into the 70s, then things obviously start to get a lot more explicit Yeah, um, with the confessions films and the adventures of films and the, the, the plumber's mates and the amorous milkman and, mm. and all those kinds of movies where things start to get a lot more explicit. And also... It seems like the more explicit they got, the less funny they got as well. Yes. Yeah. Although I do have a friend who will uh, go to his grave insisting that the Confessions films, with the exception of the last one. Um, oh, is that Holiday where, Camp? Holiday Camp, I think. Yeah. Oh, he, will, he, he, he will uh, argue to his blue in the face that they are examples of the, the best British cinema of the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> There's a moment in, I think it's Pop Performer, Confessions of a Pop Performer, when he goes into a record shop and um, he starts having it away with the woman behind the counter down on the floor and they're pulling records and um, quarter-inch tape all over themselves. And the mu- but the music that's playing is Spike Milligan. Um, yeah, and it's really weird. It's from one of his... Um, one of his albums that was out probably around that time. So you've got this sort of comedy sex scene with Spike Milligan singing over the top. <laughs> so there you go. Now you can do an episode of your podcast on that. I can. Show. I can do um, Confessions of a Pop Performer. Yeah. It's like they they thought, just in case the audience are going to get too titillated by this scene, we need to kill the mood mm. with some comedy, <laughs> comedy Milligan singing. Yeah. But I'll get, anyway. get round to doing that episode once I've done... <laughs> like everything else. everything else like melting pot <laughs> highway um <laughs> yeah uh, which which neatly brings me on to just kind of winding up here adrian and mm. i'd like to just quickly um talk about your podcasts so you're co-host of two podcasts the um wild wild podcasts and second features yes, yes. they are uh, two things that we you know i think everybody pretty much started a podcast over lockdown yeah and so these were mine Raise so hand. second yeah second features was one it was actually a couple of years ago um my friend laura and i 
began planning to do a podcast and then it never quite came together. We actually recorded an episode about the, I think about a week before lockdown. And this is a more sort of academic podcast where we choose films that are, you know, well, second features effectively, films that are fairly uh, forgotten or just not particularly talked about in academia. And so we discuss them, a bit of research, analyze them, say what we think about them. But then what we also do is bring in um, other academics who are guests, you know, who are experts in that particular field. So we've got quite interesting interviews with various academics. We've done films like Shogun Assassin. Um, now my mind's gone blank and I can't think of any of our episodes. Eskimo Now. Eskimo Nell, of course. Yes. Mm. Oh, yeah. Speaking of sex comedies, mm-hmm. um, Deathline was a good one that we did. Oh, yeah. mm. um, the Man Who Haunted Himself. Um, my De- other podcast. De- De- oh, sorry. sorry. Deathline is a great film. I've not watched that for years. Oh, um, it is. Very Eskimo, good. Donald, uh, Donald Pleasance yeah. is, is remarkable in that. He is. It's again talking about faces, interesting faces who pop in, but don't always get to be the star. He is in almost every scene in that movie. And yeah, he's great. Yeah. Really, really cool. So that's quite good. We're enjoying that one. And so it was through this podcast that we just did our commentary for uh, I Don't Want to Be Born. And then my other podcast I started more recently, and it's on Italian genre cinema, but not just Italian uh, giallo or Italian horror, which is what pretty much everybody talks about. So I decided uh, that we wanted to go slightly different and talk about films that don't usually get discussed so i'm doing it by season the first season has been about italians in space so it's all about italian movies where people are at some point in space basically so we've had um we've had mario bava we've had antonio margariti most people if they talk about italian films it's pretty much all horror right yeah (laughs) and i i love those too don't get me wrong but uh I thought it would be good to try and talk about some of the other ones. So that's my niche for the podcast. Is, is that, and, and look, I sound like a filthy Philistine here, but not, <laughs> it's not really my area, but is that like Argento sort of? Yeah, so he's, yes, he's mm-hmm. definitely one of the the, the prominent uh, horror directors in Italy. Um, so we probably won't be doing any Argento yet. So I'm sure I will at some point just because I really like them. Mm. Um, so I'll find an excuse to bring some in, but we're primarily doing the films that other people aren't talking about. Uh-huh. Okay. But yeah, Argento is uh, always worth watching, even though I mean his films get really weird. Yes. They yes. they make Rent a Dick uh, look like something quite sensible. <laughs> did he do? Did he do Deep Red? Yeah. And and the uh, Bird of the Crystal Plumage. That's the one. Yes, yes, I've seen those. Yeah, some of his films are just mad. Yeah, yeah. Like fever dreams. Yes. (laughs) But Bird with the Crystal Plumage, especially, yeah. Mm. Um, Excellent. Well, listen, Adrian, thank you so much again for for finding time. I know you're busy um, finding time to come and talk about rent Uh, Apologies, folks, that, you know, it wasn't so sort of goon-focused this episode, but, you know, I I thought it's a good... It's an interesting film to talk about, and... Mm. And, and anyone that listens to this podcast, I think, will generally have, a, you know, an interest in British comedy anyway. Mm. Yeah, and it's the, a good excuse to to talk about, you know, something that Ben Team didn't do very often. True, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. as I said, the... And he is funny. He's funny. I mean, it, he's 
he's howlingly offensive in this film, but, it, but yeah. if if you can push that down inside yourself and think about how you would have laughed if you'd been watching this in the 70s, he is funny. Oh, he is. And Milligan, of course, goes without saying. Yeah. Milligan yeah. Is, is funny. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been recently released on Blu-ray, uh, mm. on, on network. And as I say, Adrian provided the, the booklet for it. Uh, it's worth £10 of anyone's money. But not much more than that. Not much more. Um, maybe wait for the <laughs> network sale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Adrian, thanks again, as I say, and um, we'll uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening. Please do follow on Twitter. It's at Goon Show Pod. Also follow uh, the Goon Show Preservation Society uh, at the GSPS. I'll be back next week with another episode. Till then, bye. <laughs>